Thank you, Brian. Good to be here. Oh, I just love this room so much. I don't think we've ever given God a, a, a hand, a shout of praise for this place, huh? <laughs> Woo! I mean, in the end, it's, if, there, if God owns everything, then he owns this building and us, and what a, what a gift he has given us here. Um, I want to give a little disclaimer about my message. I want to give a little bit of a warning, a content warning, and let you know that the message uh, today contains some mild PG material, meaning that some parents might not want their children, their young children, to hear it. So <clears throat> feel free to make some adjustments now if you desire to do so. We're starting a new series today called Seek the peace, and maybe you noticed this phrase in our uh, courtyard on the, on the south wall. It, it's, it's, its meaning is a big deal for us here at Cornerstone and, and continually encourages us to ask the question, how can we engage in the world, in a world that is less than ideal? And especially in places where uh, those places are against our core beliefs and values. So I have the privilege of kicking off the series today, and the title for my first message is A Church for the City. Um, and so since our church is located here in the city of Boulder, we want to be a church for the city of Boulder, but really the church is all of you. It's, a church is not a building, it's made up of people. And so as you go, not everybody lives here in the city of Boulder, your city you want to be a person, a follower of, of Jesus for your own city. Today we're going to dive into something that I believe is incredibly profound and extremely inspirational. At least I'm hoping it's going to feel that way by the time you, you leave here. And I also believe in this series it's going to challenge us all to live out our faith with God in a way that maybe we've never considered before. And to set the stage for this deeper meaning uh, of this important phrase... And what it means to be a church for the city, I'm going to start off by doing something that's probably going to feel like a downer, all right? Uh, and I apologize up front. It's kind of like, sorry, but not sorry. And because in order to comprehend this deeper meaning in our text today, we need to understand the extreme traumatic situation that was taking place when this phrase was given to the Israelites, so let me first read the biblical text where, where it's found. It's in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. Here's what it says. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you will prosper. You know, the simple definition of an exile is someone who's forced to leave their country against their will. Emphasis on the words forced against their will. Because the content, the context of the phrase, seek the peace, is given to a group of people who are traumatized beyond anything you and I can imagine. Violently extracted from their country, 
and then forced to live in a city that is opposed to everything they value. I wonder if anyone in this room has ever been forced to leave your country. Anybody? See, I, ah, really? Awesome. So you're going you're gonna to have a little bit extra upfront knowledge here. But for most of us, our struggles are first world struggles, which means it's going to be really difficult for us to identify with this situation on a personal level, and especially how radical and probably very offensive this exhortation to seek the peace would have seemed to the Israelites when they heard the prophet Jeremiah say it to them. But let's see, let's see if we can at least imagine what it might have felt like. So I'd like you to just put down anything you're holding in your hands for a second, okay? Your cell phones, your Bibles. Get comfortable in your chairs. Take a deep breath. Try to be as present as you can in this exercise. And if you wouldn't mind, could you close your eyes? Imagine being in your home with your family, your kids, your pets. Can you imagine that? Can you see a room where you guys hang out? Can you see the faces of everyone who lives with you? Maybe you're all watching TV or playing a game together. Now think about your neighbors who live on your street. Especially those that you hang out with. Can you visualize their homes and their faces? How about the grocery store where you shop? Safeway, King Supers, Whole Foods. Your favorite local coffee shop. Your restaurant. Are you, are, can you see these things as I'm, I'm calling them out? The school that you or your kids attend. Your workplace. The gym you work out. The trails you love to hike, run, or mountain bike on. Now shift gears a little bit and imagine you're watching your favorite TV show and all of a sudden it's interrupted with breaking news. That a massive hostile army is rapidly approaching your city. One that is a force beyond anyone's ability to stop. There's nowhere to flee. There's no way to resist. Imagine how you would feel. Fear and maybe panic and powerlessness as all you can do is just wait. What thoughts would be going through your mind? What would you tell your kids? Now imagine a few hours later hearing drum beats and trumpet blasts off in the distance and war chants by the approaching warriors. All becoming louder and louder as they come near to your neighborhood. Soon your street is overrun with these fierce warriors, devastating everything in their path. Your home, your cars, even some of your family and friends. You see it all happening right in front of your eyes. But somehow you managed to survive the onslaught. Now, imagine being rounded up with all the other survivors, 
ripped from the country, the comfort and familiarity of your city and forced to walk several hundred miles through the desert under unbearable living conditions, barely enough food and water to survive, painful blisters on the bottom of your feet. It'll take over three long, excruciating weeks for you to arrive to your captive city, which represents everything against what you value most in your life. Your faith, your morals, your ethics, but you cannot leave, and you will spend the rest of your life there. You're now in exile. Okay, take another deep breath. And I want to ask, did anyone feel uncomfortable going through that? Did you want me to stop? Did you want to get up and leave? Were you concerned how this might be affecting your kids? In 586 BC, the Babylonian war machine marched into Jerusalem, completely devastating that city. Slaughtered many people in the process and then carried the survivors into exile to Babylon where they would live forced detention for 70 years. Enough time that most of that orig those original exiles would have become deceased by then. Babylon, which is today located in modern Iraq, very close to the city of Baghdad, is located 545 miles from Jerusalem. And the landscape between those two cities is mostly a blistering, hot, barren desert frequented by massive dust storms. That 545-mile distance is very similar to the distance between Boulder, Colorado and Wichita, Kansas. Plus or minus 20, 20 miles or so. Here's a Google map graphic. I hope we have it. Yeah, okay. Uh, I set this for walking from Boulder to Wichita. And Google, tell, Google Maps tells us that would take 172 hours to walk 532 miles. But that would be without stopping to eat or rest or sleep. So most, that's most likely triple or quadruple that amount of time. And I imagine many didn't even survive that journey. And those who did survive found themselves forced to live in a city that would be the opposite of their Jewish lifestyle and faith. And maybe you recall the story of Daniel. He was one of the exiles, refusing to eat the food that was being served because it would not have been kosher. Daniel 1.8 says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. And this might seem like a, like a minor inconvenience, but it's a big deal for a devout Jew. It would have felt like being violated every time you take a bite of food. And there are so many other ways that the Babylonian culture stood against Jewish beliefs and values in this wicked and perverse city. It was probably the worst place God had, could have chosen for a Jew to be exiled. In the Bible and in literature, Babylon is frequently used as a metaphor to describe the darkest side of civilization and everything that stands against God. Revelation 18, one through three is just one passage that kind of highlights that, it speaks about Babylon's dark influence in the world. It says, I saw another angel 
coming down from heaven, he had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. The Israelites had been taken from heaven on earth to hell on earth. And if we can put up that Jeremiah passage on the screen once again, this dreadful place, with that traumatic, such traumatic experience, is where God exhorted the Israelites to build houses, to settle down, plant gardens, eat the food that they produce, marry and have kids, find wives for your sons, husbands for your daughters, so they in turn can have children. In other words, you're going to be here for a long time. (laughs) Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for this city, Babylon, because if it prospers, you will prosper. Now, you think that God would have said something like, do the best you can to survive this. Stick to yourselves as much as possible. Resist that evil culture at every front. But it's just the opposite. God exhorts them to dig in, become assimilated into the Babylonian culture, which must have seemed absurd to them at the time. And contrary to everything they understood about God's commandments, his mitzvot from the Torah. And I imagine they began to question whether Jeremiah was truly representing God's will for them. In fact, many of the Israelites actually did question Jeremiah. And to understand what's behind these very provocative exhortations by God, we need to ask ourselves the questions, Why did God exile the Israelites in the first place? Why did he do that to them? Now, most Bible teachers will point to Israel's sinful behavior, like they were drinking moonshine behind the temple, or looking at hierographic porn carved into the rocks or something. I don't know. And, you know, to be honest, sinfulness like that... was true to some extent, but it is not the main reason at all. The main reason, if you do an honest study, the main reason God exiled the Israelites is because they were neglecting to care for, the, for those that God cared for the most. Those who lived on the margins of society. Those who were vulnerable to, to neglect, abuse, and poverty, like widows, orphans, immigrants, And of all the people in the world, God called the Jews to be on the front lines of justice and mercy. But over time, Israelites became self-centered like we all do, you know, even though God made this kind of care very clear in the Torah. Let me just read you a couple of passages where God points out this kind of neglect and then the reason for Israel's exile. Isaiah 58, 5 through 7 It's a chapter talking about fasting, a very positive, powerful, spiritual discipline. But it 
wasn't being executed the way it should have been executed. And God is kind of coming down on those who were using fasting as a way maybe to be showy or to think to themselves, look how spiritual I am. And so God says in verse 5, is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice? And to untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free? And to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and the poor? Provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Does this sound like Jesus saying, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. When I was naked, you didn't give me clothes. Isaiah chapter 5 is more direct about this, verse 1 through 7. It's a beautiful metaphor for a horrible situation. He says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of all stones and planted it with the choicest vines. Then he built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then he looked for good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge. It will be destroyed. I will break down its wall. And it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. Neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will not grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, and he only found bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. And we know that God's judgment from this neglect was the exile of the Israelites to this foreign country called Babylon. That would be one of the most difficult places for the Israelites to live. Why? And here's the most important lesson to learn from this message today. If you don't get anything else, get this, okay? The reason was to learn or to be motivated how to administer God's radical love in one of the hardest cities in the world to do that. Maybe the city of Boulder is coming to mind all of a sudden here. <laughs> they failed in the easiest city in the world, Jerusalem. How easy would it have been to administer God's love in a place like Jerusalem? Will they get, learn how to do it in the hardest city, Babylon? And listen to this, seek the peace is a synonym 
for the administration of God's unconditional love, the church will never be able to seek the peace of any city if the people of the church don't unconditionally love the people of the city where they are planted. End of story. Now, Andrew and I uh, weren't exiled here to Boulder, but I do remember that when God made it clear to us that we were to move to the city, we really didn't know much about Boulder's reputation, except that it sat in the foothills of the Colorado Rockies, and that was enough for us. But as people began to learn that we were moving here, we began to hear reactions like, oh, Boulder, oh, man, you sure you want to go there? And we heard stereotypes about Boulder, like 27 square miles surrounded by reality. <laughs> the People's Republic of Boulder. Oh, you need a passport to get into Boulder. New Age, ultra-liberal stronghold. Granola heads. Subaru nerds. 420 snobs. And we heard over and over again how hard it is to be a follower of Jesus in Boulder, especially trying to establish a church there. My son Michael and I came out here first to find a home, and we, whoa, the rent prices were like, you know, we come from California, and I'm seeing the rent prices here like higher than California. But I remember finding one located on some place called The Hill. <laughs> Sounds kind of nice, I thought. So I... I called, I called the management company. The person said, do you have kids that are still in school? I go, yeah, why? He says, and you want to you move to the hill? Do you know that it's a party area for CU college students? I go, oh. So we ended up, ended up renting for six months till we bought a home in Louisville. <laughs> Even though Louisville doesn't sound nearly as cool as the hill. <laughs> and for, for eight years, for eight years here in Boulder... The first eight years, Cornerstone, we really weren't reaching people of Boulder. Most of the people that came here came from other cities, Lafayette, Louisville, Longmont, Westminster, Broomfield. And back then, I began to feel that something was lacking, particularly in me. I just wasn't sure what it was. In 2002, exactly eight years, after arriving in Boulder, me and a few other pastors who felt the same way, we put together a field trip. And because I was the only hippie in the group, I called it the Magical Mystery Tour. <laughs> there were no mushrooms involved, okay. Um, we rented a passenger van, set up appointments with six uh, secular human service organizations in Boulder, and we came to all of them with two questions. Number one, do you know who we are? Number two, if we were to leave Boulder tomorrow, would it negatively impact your organization? It's the only two questions we had. And since we weren't engaged with any of these organizations, we pretty much already anticipated how they would answer them. They all said the same thing. Well, you know, you seem like really great people, but since you're not supporting us in any way, leaving the city wouldn't have any negative impact on us whatsoever. And of course, that led to some great conversations with these precious folks about what they did in the community, the services provided, and how in the future we might end up supporting them. 
But I came away deeply affected by those visits. And even though I still didn't understand what needed to change in me internally, I was determined that day that within a decade, the city of Boulder would beg us not to leave the city. And I instinctively knew that I needed to change first before I could ask the people of Cornerstone to make changes as them. I needed to even figure out what needed to change. So the very next week, I walked into Boulder County AIDS Project called BCAP, as it's known around town. And I said, I would like to volunteer here if you would let me. And they were very suspicious about why I wanted to do that. But after assuring them that I was on a personal mission to learn something from the experience and didn't have some kind of ulterior motive for being there, they agreed to put me in charge of their food pantry. Handing out food to HIV positive patients, driving it to their homes if they're too weak to make the trip. And I did that for twice a week for the next two years. Tuesdays and Thursdays. And honestly, back then, BCAP felt to me like Babylon. It really did. The person at the front desk was a transvestite who always got up and greeted me with a hug and an attempted kiss on the lips. I'd always have to <laughs> turn my face. <clears throat> she kept flavored condoms on her desk. Middle schoolers would come in every day after school to grab a handful and she would encourage them to pick certain kinds of flavors. They kept a public resource library where many of the books taught how to have sex, let's just say in very creative ways for same-sex relationships. I even had one guy mock me by frequently asking me out on a date. He wasn't serious, he was just teasing me. And another one who would shout me down for being a Christian. But that experience really changed me. I mean, how could I be a follower of Jesus in this environment? And I knew the answer to that question would be the answer to what was lacking in me. And then God led me to this passage in Jeremiah. When I bring you to the city, when I bring you to this organization, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, get married, have kids, so that your children can have kids. Seek the peace and prosperity. For if that organization prospers, you will prosper. I couldn't really see how to do something like that in the city of Boulder yet. But as I applied this passage to my time inside the offices at BCAP, it became clear to me what God was trying to accomplish in me. He was saying, Gene, you will never seek the peace of anything if you don't unconditionally love the people wherever I plant you. Like BCAP. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and when I say unconditional love, 
I mean not in, in a non-judgmental way that comes from a genuine heart, a genuine love deep within the heart for everyone. The whole experience flipped for me that day. And I can honestly say that over time, <laughs> I came to genuinely love that trans receptionist. I still didn't let her kiss me on the mouth. But I look forward to her greeting twice a week, along with all the rest of the people at BCAP. And I know they all came to feel the same way about me. It was an incredible experience. Love without judgment, that's what was missing in me. Isn't that what Jesus said his mission was on earth? I did not come to judge the earth. What did he come to do to save it through my sacrifice? Now, it might come as a surprise to you to learn that when the Israelites were finally given permission to leave Babylon and return to Jerusalem, are you ready for this? More people decided to remain in Babylon than those who returned to Jerusalem. Did you know that? 50,000 returned, 80,000 stayed. And the Jews who stayed had not only integrated into the Babylonian culture, but they lived in such a caring way that they had an impact on that culture. Many Jewish advancements in economics and philosophy and literature happened while living in Babylon. The Babylonian Talmud, a commentary on the Torah, was written in Babylon. Many of Israel's famous rabbis decided to live there as well. And the radical teachings of the Torah, especially those teachings that promote justice and human flourishing, had a great impact on that city over a long period of time. And listen to this, the Jewish community remained in that area of the Middle East, believe it or not, all the way until the late 1940s, when Muslim radicalism grew too dangerous to continue to live there. Where did they go? Jerusalem. So after my time at BCAP came to an end, we eventually started, I'm sorry, I'm so emotional this morning. Could somebody give me some water? I am just losing my ability to move my tongue. Uh, got it. Is this your water? I drank a little bit. Thank you, okay. <laughs> yeah. That's love right there. Not his, mine. Okay. After BCAP, we eventually started a justice and mercy ministry here at Cornerstone. We did nothing prior to that. Nothing to serve this city at all. We just waited for people to show up here. We started this ministry to get involved with various social issues in Boulder that affected the most vulnerable populations, homeless, refugees, immigrants, foster kids, adoption, so much. At one point, listen to this, at one point the Boulder Valley School District trusted and valued our efforts so much they actually invited us to mentor their teenage students. Do you know how ridiculously crazy that is? 
Asking Christians back then to influence Boulder Valley School District kids was unheard of because of a well-deserved distrust by Christians in this city who did a bait and switch. You know, they just used that as a way to bring people to Jesus. You know, we tell people all the time, we go out and we do the right thing because that's what God wants to do, period, end of story. That's not our evangelistic strategy. In fact, we have none. Have you noticed that? But have you noticed that lots of people come and meet Jesus here? But over time, we earned their trust, and for a season, we provided mentors for Boulder Valley School District students. One of the best services in Boulder County that we do today. Where are we at on time? Oh. Who cares about it? Are we having fun? One of the best services in Bo- that, that we do in Boulder County today is we offer tutoring to Latinx elementary children through an organization called El Paso. They're not a Christian organization. We'll partner with anybody that helps human flourishing. The parents are mostly Mexican immigrants who typically don't speak English, and without our help, these kids would lag way behind in their education. But we come alongside them. Our people get to know their families. It's a great experience. We need more people, so... If you'd like to help out, I think we have a slide behind me. For our text number, just text Justice and Mercy, and we'll get back to you. There's so many other things that we do. We do, we've expanded what we do here globally. We do work in an entire village in Uganda, human trafficking, help human trafficking survivors in Mexico City. I've got a few more spots left on um, a group that we're bringing there late January. You can text that same number. We partnered with an organization in Israel that does foster care. It was unheard of in Israel until this organization started a few years ago. And then we do peacemaking efforts uh, with an organization to help bring peace between Israelis and Palestinians. And I'm proud to say that if Cornerstone were to close its doors today, not only would the city of Boulder County miss us, so would many other cities around the world. You can't imagine the impact that this little church has on this planet. Okay, I want to end by sharing one more verse to you, and this is from Lamentations 3, 19 through 23. Lamentations, it's thought that the prophet Jeremiah wrote it, and he's writing during the time of the Babylonians came in. Babylonians came in and ransacked Jerusalem, and he basically spends, you know, the first eighteen verses ranting about how hard life has become, and he uses metaphors like, "All my bones are broken, my teeth have fallen out, I've lost all my strength." But then in verse nineteen, he turns the corner. And he says, "I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall, and I remember them." And my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind. Therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now if you're like me, you ask a lot of questions about things. And one of the questions I have is, 
You know, the destruction of Israel and the exile to Babylon seems a little excessive, doesn't it? <laughs> just to make a point, just to teach them something. And he didn't just do this once, he did it twice. For the same reasons. And I think Jeremiah understood how important the love of God is because of his great love, and that's the word chesed. This, that's the highest form of God's love. It usually is translated like loving kindness. Because of God's great love for us, we are not consumed. Great is his faithfulness. The love of God that crosses every boundary to reach you and me and everyone else. And he focuses on the word hope. That's the word hatikva or tikva in Hebrew. Do you know what the Israel's national anthem is called? Hatikva. Tikva. It literally means the hope, like the hope. Here are the words. As long as the Jewish spirit is yearning deep in the heart, with eyes turned towards the east, looking towards Zion, then our hope, a 2,000-year-old hope, will not be lost. For what? To be a free people in our land, the land of Zion and Jerusalem. And I'm sure this anthem comes from Lamentations chapter 3. Brian's going to teach you next week how the Jewish people, and really all of us too, are the not yet home people. You know that we're exiles, aliens on this planet. We have a future hope. Hatikva, the hope. I mean, who writes a national anthem about hope? Israel. Who else? America. Did you know that? That our national anthem is about hope? Twenty-one years ago today, three thousand men and women lost their lives in the twin towers of the World Trade Center. What was it for? Nothing. Just a bunch of radical people. Of course not. God either allows or causes everything that happens and there's lessons in everything that happens in our life. And today as we look back on that event, we have hope. Hope for a better future. Hope for a better country. Hope for a better people. And I think the best way to honor those men and women and the surviving members who were reminded each year of their loss, I'd like you to stand. And I want you to sing something with me. And I want you to know that our flag, the American flag, a lot of people are talking really bad about it today. It's always meant to be a symbol of hope. 
And the national anthem was written to focus in on that hope. During a time in America's history when it wasn't uncertain that when the dust cleared, we'd be okay, but when the dust cleared, we were okay. And what did they see? The flag. A symbol of hope, a symbol of freedom, a symbol of faith. That's what our flag represents.